Hello everyone, and welcome to a brand new podcast, Film to Save the World, with me, Owen. And me, Ross. Where two film fanatics discuss anything to do with films over a couple of months. So join us on our adventure through cinema and time. How are you? I'm very good, mate. I'm very good. How are you doing? I'm very well. I've got uh, a rather fizzy, fizzy beer with me right now, but... Oh, yeah? What's yeah, uh, pretty? What you having this busy. time? Uh, I've got an Amstel uh, from Amsterdam. Oh. What are you? Uh, what are you drinking today? Then? I'm on the Thatcher's Gold. Ah. What Love did you it. have last time? Do you remember? I had a um, Sheppies. Oh, that's right, Sheppies. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of a. I enjoy a good cider, but beer I struggle with. I'll be honest. It's not beer's not really my my cup of tea. Yeah, it's funny. I'm I'm the opposite. I'm I struggle slightly with cider sometimes. I can mm. drink them, but um, I haven't really drunk them properly since uni. Yeah, know? the old early uni days. It was all oh, cheap yeah. ciders and stuff. But old Rosie. We went to Cineworld in um, mm. what was the army town near our uni yeah, called it was again? Aldershot, wasn't it? Aldershot. Yeah, Aldershot. Yeah. We went to Cineworld, and we went to see. Um, I believe it's one of the Marvel films. It could have been, could have been Infinity War, or it could have been just a bit before that. I'm not entirely sure, possible, but yeah. I remember we drove there and we went to Morrison's beforehand, and I picked up the massive, yeah. like, like a glass barrel, but it's yeah. it's about a liter of point two or something of Old Rosie. I I was really not well after it. Not in terms of hungover <laughs> or drunk or anything. I just physically felt ill. I didn't drink it all, but were you drinking it whilst we were watching the film? Then hell yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's trick. It's tricky to sit there with the and just like have this two-handed glass, <laughs> liter bottle of cider of, of cider and just hold it up and drink it in a cinema oh, that dear. was had quite a few people in. You must have looked like a right ruffian. Yeah. Oh, honestly, <laughs> drinking <laughs> old Rosie two liter of cider. Oh my god, the smell as well. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> old Rosie does not smell good. I'll be honest. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, which if it was a Marvel film, which one do you remember the least about? Because it's probably that one that we saw. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so um, I guess we'll be moving on to our number nine then. I'll go first because you went first yeah. last time. Okay, sounds good to me. Just a quick reminder to anyone who hasn't listened to the podcast before, but we will be discussing spoilers throughout the episode. So if you don't want to hear about other of our films, listen to the first bit where we mention what film it is we'll be discussing today, and then go ahead and watch them and come back. Otherwise, if you're not bothered about spoilers, we'll jump straight into it. So my number ninth best film of all time is Dances with Wolves, 1990, directed by Kevin mm. Costner and starring him as well, mm. alongside Mary McDonnell and Graham Greene. And the story is set during the American Civil War, and Kevin Costner is playing a character called John Dunbar. He's a lieutenant in the Northern Union Army, and he moves to a remote western outpost... And this outpost is set right out on the edge of the western frontier. And he, over a period of events, befriends a wolf and a local Native American tribe. And over a period of certain trials and testing situations for him, he eventually gives up his old life as an army lieutenant 
he becomes a tribal member. And this tribe is the Sioux. So Graham Greene's character is called Kicking Bird, and he is the medicine man to the community. And the tribal leader, the chief, is called Ten Bears. And Mary McDonnell plays the love interest for John Dunbar, and her character is called Stands With a Fist. And over a period of a few months, he starts to learn the ways of the community, and he slowly starts getting accepted by the community. And over the period of time, he starts to learn the language, he starts to dress as them, he starts to act like them, and he will stop at nothing to help them out. They are his focus in the film. And of course this leads to conflict with the Union Army, who he of course used to be a part of. So there's no real happy ending. The Indians make it to their winter camp, and the Union Army is hunting Dunbar. There's a scene slightly earlier in the film where he gets captured by the Union Army and he's going to be taken back to town to be hung as a traitor, which is, you know, he's, he's seen as scum by his old comrades. He unfortunately loses two friends during uh, the final scenes, which is, of course, very sad, being as we've had four hours-ish mm. watching this woman learning about all these different characters. And John Dunbar, otherwise known as Dancers with Wolves at this point, gets rescued by the Sioux, and they say to him, we see you as one of us, you are not a, a white Union soldier, mm. you are Dancers with Wolves and you're a member of this community. And it ends with the US troops searching the mountains, but they can't locate Dunbar or the tribe. Um, and then there's a lone wolf that howls in the distance, and you sort of think maybe it is a bit of a happy ending in some way because they've got away from the army but then this epilogue text shows up and it says 13 years later their homes destroyed their buffalo gone the last band of free sioux submitted to white authority at fort robinson nebraska the great horse culture of the plains was gone and the american frontier was soon to pass into history and it's just a stark reminder as to how history has been Mm. for these native american communities it's just utterly horrific what the u.s Mm. government at the time did to them what the u.s army has done to them what trappers or just lone individuals have done to them and it's just incredibly sad and this film it has such a beautiful way of telling this really sad story so uh that's part of the reason why it is my number ninth best film of all time because it touches on such a serious and um, complex topic that happened in history not too long ago but it plays it so beautifully and it's filmed with such care compared to quite a lot of westerns that came before it where the Native Americans were seen as the bad guys they were the villains you know you cheered for the white cowboy or the cavalry to come in and save the day and this film is is the polar opposite of that it's showing the, the other side of the coin you know um, and to me, that is why it is in my top ten. So yes, Owen, mate, mm. I'd love to hear what your thoughts were on it. So I, I I'd only seen it once, um, and it was it was probably similar to you. It's probably on a Sunday afternoon on Film Four, um, as it seems to be quite a mainstay there. I mean, <laughs> um, and I'd seen it as a I can't remember how old I was, but I, I was quite young. 
Um, obviously, it's, it's a lengthy film. It's about three hours, the theatrical Theatrical, cut. yeah. And then they released a extended cut the year after its release, or two years after. Oh, really? And, and right. it's um, just under four hours. So if you're, yeah. if, you're, if you're wanting to watch this film, even now knowing all the spoilers, you need to set easily an afternoon aside to watch this. It's seriously... Yeah, it's, no, I, it's a long... it in, I rewatched it in two halves, basically, recently. Um, yeah. Because the uh, it was only the extended version that was on Amazon Prime. Yeah. But I, I I remember as a kid, I, I really enjoyed it. It was one of those, it was like really long Western that, you know, as a kid, you were just like, oh, this is old. But yeah. I, I still, even as a kid, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And so watching it again, yeah, I, I thought it was great. It was fantastic. I mean, it's such a, it's one of those films, even as a 24-year-old, um <laughs> It still feels like you still watch it and feel like, ah, oh, they don't make them like they used to. Do no, they? that's right. It hits no. you with that that feeling, you know, of like, ah, oh, you know, time. It was almost times were simpler to into an extent. It's like it's such a gentle film. Yeah, it's you know you you almost could just put it on and watch it every day. Like, do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, you watch it so often because it's so lovely just to watch and listen to the music. Yeah. is amazing. I think yeah the, the the music is incredible. I think it's one of the most poetic westerns I've ever seen. It's classed as a revisionist western. Yeah, the revisionist western is also called an anti-western, and it's a subgenre of the western film genre. And essentially, it subverts the myth and the romance of traditional Westerns. So a traditional Western will always have clear boundaries between both good characters and evil Mm -hmm. characters or good organisations, bad organisations. So you can have the gang, governments, all of that. That's going to be clearly laid out as good and bad. Whereas a revisionist Western, it's a lot more blurred lines. There's no morally pure people. They're all just mm-hmm. shades of grey. So the subgenre of the revisionist Western has been around since the dawn of the Western genre. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's just sprung up in you know 20 years. It's been something that's been there from the beginning. Morally questionable people and questionable characters where it's not a clear divide between good and bad, which is what, obviously, the classic Westerns are. There's that clear separation. So a couple of examples of a revisionist Western throughout the decades are The Great Train Robbery, 1903, Winchester, 73, that's 1950, The Good, the Bad, the Ugly, 1966, and The Day of the Evil Gun, 1968. And there's a clear trend through all the decades where there are films of this subgenre being made it clearly is something where people are adapting the classical version of the west and flipping those ideals on their head and dances with wolves is a very good example of one of these revisions right, um westerns were very it was very white man is the hero Native mm-hmm. Americans or bandits, they're all the bad guys. You don't know anything about them. You you know nothing. You have the, 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 the Union Army come in and they wipe out the Indians. And back in the... Mm-hmm. back, You know, however many decades ago, people would love that in cinemas. It was like some of the best films of all time in maybe that generation's mind were these old-fashioned westerns. Mm. For... The sort of 90s, there was sort of a, a, a revisionist push and there were a few westerns that came out which were 
reimagined some very different sort of stories but they showed things from from native americans perspective as well they had mm. sympathetic characters that were in native americans interest so they had so with this film you know kicking bird he was like one of the the best characters in the film i mean the, the native americans are a race of people who've had everything taken away from them by the white man mm. and they're only defending what little they have left so you know their way of life is being lost and the environment is being per- permanently damaged by these people coming in laying railroad track they've got cities towns with factories throwing smoke up into the atmosphere killing buffalo there's a scene in the film where um there's buffalo just shot there's like yeah probably 50 60 buffalo which is a huge amount in a herd yeah, they're all been skinned as well and yeah stuff, they've just been know, skinned but, but the, they've the everything else has left, left. Wrong, and of course it? it's all yeah. tainted you can't use it and to them that is utter disrespect yeah. to the native american way of life that is utter disrespect so that there was some also really interesting moments where these two totally different cultures came together and dunbar got accepted and joined this other community mm. um he accepted their religion, their ideologies, which, you know, growing up in that sort of time period as being a a Union soldier, he, he most likely could have been a Christian. So to go from being a Christian and holding the Union and the army to his heart, he then mm. joins another community where all of that is totally thrown by the wayside. It's It, it shows that he had a very clear connection to, to, to all mm. of them and their way of life. There's this lovely message at the end of the film which, where you've got um, uh, wind... What, what's the... Wind in his hair. Wind in, right, it is wind in his hair. So wind in his hair is like stat, is on his horse kind of way up yeah. in the kind of mountains. Um, and he's shouting down to Dances with Wolves as Dances with Wolves is leaving, essentially. Yeah. Um, and he just says, you know, I'm I'm your friend. You know, I hope that you know, you know, and you'll remember that you know, yeah. we are friends. And that's almost the whole film summarised in this one kind of moment at the end, isn't it? It's this thing yeah. of, of like, you know, there are always bad people in the world. You know, that the film isn't black and white in terms of white man bad, <laughs> yeah, yeah, American good. But it's this thing of like good versus evil isn't nationality versus nationality it's just as simple as yeah yeah versus evil you of know? course yeah um and it's this thing of building bridges and, and it's such a nice <clears> moment <throat> at the end of saying you know we can be friends you know um and it just it's such a nice way of just kind of closing out the whole whole film with this this yeah. kind of moment yeah yeah it's a really beautiful moment where it's it shows the progression of how this journey that Dunbar and the tribe have gone on when they first met and it's really really sad because he has to leave his his real family in order to save them from himself in a way and it's such a great scene as well at the start it's, it's, it's so, so well made um yeah for yeah, yeah. for the sort of size um for the size of the cast that were involved you know there's no green screen in this which or, or at least yeah. from what you can tell there isn't any green screen. The people who are there are real people. Yeah, um, yeah. It is for all you know, for all <clears throat> intents and purposes, it is. It's a proper movie. Yes, you know, it's it's a proper. It is a western, film. but it's it is a proper blockbuster sort of movie. I mean, I'll go on to the awards in a minute, and some uh, mm. there's a really really there, fascinating. There's <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of awards. Towards the end of the film, you sort of you see 
the audience sees that the true sort of um, antagonists of the film are the white white people because they've come yeah. in yeah. and they've disrupted this ancient community's way of life. Their yeah. the nature, they tear everything up, and they see it as they're civilizing that uh, they're bringing civilization to this part of the world. Yeah. The white people at that time didn't think that they were civilized, but their the Native American civilization is totally different but they're both civilizations you know they yeah, both yeah, yeah. they both have their way of life and it's incredibly um you can get so political with this stuff and it it, and it, <laughs> it has gotten so political and trying to keep it fairly light-hearted but yeah. but you know the white people were have have committed genocide over native americans for across all this time period yeah. so well, they were the invaders not, yeah you know. invaders they came and they overwhelmed the native americans it's it's incredibly sad but there was this one bit which i also just wanted to say which was a really good symbolism um dunbar when he first arrives at the post he befriends this wolf two socks and this mm. lone wolf is a symbol for how dunbar now is and how he lives outside of his own pack of the army so he's mm. essentially on the you know, he's on the edge of the frontier, miles and miles and miles away from anything he knows. And he's on yeah. his own. He's and he, he's just as alone as this lone wolf is. So and then eventually, of course, he takes up with those who he would normally consider to be his enemies. He literally dances with the wolf mm. at play, and the Indians see see Dunbar have this really interesting interaction with him. So that was when they they pointed him as being he's now dances with wolves yeah. and i just thought it's it's a really clever connection further connection when you think deeper and deeper about it because worth saying i mean you know worth saying as well the whole film is told through he's speaking out his diary entries kind of yeah you know, out loud um which is all you know it's it's, it's quite funny when because his <laughs> his delivery is so almost unemotional you know yeah that's that's a so, that's a costner thing i think he was right. a bit like that in um Robin Hood, mm. but this film, wow! It it won seven Oscars in nineteen ninety at the nineteen. Yeah, it's, it's one of the yeah. big ones, isn't it? It, it won. They just swept. Yeah, just to name a few, it was best picture, best adapted writing, best director, best sound. But part of the story, I don't know if you know this story, but there's this brilliant story that Kevin Costner told about how the whole sort of film came to be. So mm. he started out in the film industry. He joined in with a lot of friends who also started at the same point as him. One of the friends who he started with was a guy called Michael Blake and right. Michael Blake focused on writing and he he'd kind of been writing for quite a few years. Anyway, Kevin had kind of made it by this point and he was trying mm. to sort of trying to help his friends out and he decided to he sent this guy Michael on job hunts. The feedback that Kevin kept getting was that this guy was just being an absolute arsehole to everyone who he came across. He was just being so kind right. of not necessarily ungrateful, but just being a real dick to everyone. Interesting. And he got really pissed off at this. He was sort of like, you know, I'm here. I'm trying to you know, help you out. And people are just saying you're acting like an absolute arsehole. This writer starts saying, you know, I hate Hollywood. I hate you people who, who are in it. You you know, you think yourself all up there. Kevin said, well, you know, some of these people that you're insulting are, are people that I consider friends now. You know, I've worked with them. Yeah. He said this writer, Michael, says something over the line. Kevin just said that he saw red and he had him up against a wall. So anyway, time passes and Kevin thought that his friendship with this guy was over by this point, but um, it wasn't. Anyway, this guy starts to lose various things in his life. He becomes homeless and he 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 asks 
to stay with Kevin, and he does. He lets him stay for a few months with him. Um, every day and every night, he would be sat there writing a, a story, and he kept saying to Kevin, "Can you read this?" And he goes, "No, I'm not interested." He caught this bloke reading to Kevin's daughter at night, and mm. Kevin's wife said, "You know, I, I don't feel comfortable with this. We have to ask him to leave." So he essentially kicks him out. And um, this guy then moves to another state and starts working in a Chinese restaurant, washing up. Right. And um, he's he's writing and he, he he sends Kevin a script for a film. And he says, uh, you know, have you read the script? And he goes, no, I, I, I haven't read it. Yeah, I, I don't really care by this point. Um, anyway, this guy keeps badgering him and saying, have you read the script? Have you read the script? Kevin eventually says, right, I'll read the script. And the script was Dances with Wolves. Right. And he... At that point, he then he rang him up and he said, "You, th- you've done it. This is what you've been wanting. You've finally got it. You know, all of this pushing that you've had has paid off. You've you've made this." And he says, "I don't know what it's going to take, but I'm going to make this a film. I'm going to." That essentially led on to the writer winning an Oscar. So you know, within <laughs> within a few years, he went from washing up dishes at a Chinese restaurant to winning an Oscar for best writing. And I I just love that story absolutely love it yeah it's such a good portrayal of how you can just if you keep at something long enough no matter how hard it can Mm. sort of feel at the time you can get there and create one of the most well in my mind one of the best films of all time (laughs) yeah i think it's just absolutely fascinating how in these sort of dark periods in your life you can create masterpieces Mm. It's, it's, it's worth kind of saying. I mean, we we both watched the extended four hour cut, and yeah. I have, it it does not feel like a four hour movie. It doesn't. No. It's, it's I, I, and and it's it's not because it's fast paced. To be fair, I think a fast paced film would feel probably longer, but because it's just yeah. slow and it's just very kind of delicate and gentle. Yeah. It it just the whole thing just just kind of sweeps you up. You know. Yeah, um, you know, and it's it's got a lot of heart, and its heart's very much coming in the right place, and and yeah, see, it's this again. It's going back to part of the reason criteria that I look for in these films is context from behind the scenes, yeah. and the context around making it. Like that story about how the writer came to write the story, I yeah. love that. Absolutely love yeah. it when stuff like that is found out because it makes the whole it puts the film into a brand new perspective. I don't know if you feel that, but to me, no, it, I hold yeah, it on completely. such high regards. You, you can you can make a story about anything, you know. Yeah. As long as you tell it well. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, anything's interesting, you know. Anything's possible um, in the world of filmmaking. Yeah, that's right. That's the message. <laughs> that that is indeed. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think it's such a just beautiful film. You know, it's yeah. You know, it's. I think it's a it's a really nice, just kind of lovely film. You know, it's not. Yeah. You know, there are parts where it's violent, but it's not overly gratuitous or, or in your face. It's just kind of it just shows it as it happens, you know, it doesn't yeah. um doesn't dwell on things too much. It, it's a beautiful film I think to maybe watch again nowadays because it's it shows this there's a lot of fear around um the fear of the unknown. A lot of people have mm. this worry about you know, the world today is just so full of fear and hate and here's yeah. a film where you have two people from totally different backgrounds, two different cultures, in a time where their people were warring with each other. Mm. Um, well, essentially, one was exterminating the other. Um, yeah. They managed to find friendship and even love 
between each other and they they just accepted each other for who they were i think that's mm. a lesson which is even more relevant mm. now than when it was in in the 90s it could have been one of the first westerns that i've ever seen so in that regard i think it set a real imprint on my mind of the love of westerns and how you know in this time not too long ago you have all of these different aspects of the white man moving further west you have these indigenous and native american groups being Mm. pushed further west by this inevitable wave of uh, of a new culture heading their way there's so much to kind of think about when watching this film because you've got all of those different characters and communities and values thrown in it's just very interesting to me and i think that's Mm. that that's why it's my number my number nine right so um so now i will move on to your number nine yeah so my number nine is memories of murder from 2003 um directed by bong joon ho the later oscar winning bong joon ho um, Indeed, it was his. It was his second second film. Um, his first film was called Barking Dogs Never Bite, which is a kind of comedy. But Memories of Murder is, is <laughs> certainly not a com- not a comedy. Though it has has funny moments. But so Memories of Murder is set in. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to to unpack. There's, yeah. a, there's a, all manner of real world implications as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get into it. So. The film was set in 1986 in, excuse my pronunciation of some of these, but in the Gyeonggi province. So the, the body of a young woman is found and she's been raped and murdered. Um, yeah. Two months later, more kind of rapes and murders start to happen. And it appears it's in the same, essentially the same way. It's done in the same fashion. Um, and so the police force in the Gyeonggi province starts to understand this could be a serial murderer and there's a kind of the the nearest kind of major city to them is seoul um and there's a police officer out in seoul who kind of requests to be assigned to this case happening in, in gyeonggi um and it is essentially kind of it is about the solving of that case of, of trying to figure out this serial killer trying to figure out all of the um all of the pieces that you know what kind of makes them tick you know what they get get off of because yeah. there's there's some there's always a thread you know sort of thing with um with serial killers yes yeah, so essentially the film is is that it's just the case but the whole film is based on um a real serial killer in korea um around the same time there were 10 10 murders essentially between 1986 and 1991 in korea um and it is is kind of considered, I don't know if it's the only, but certainly kind of the first major kind of widely known serial killer in South Korea. Yeah. Um. And when the film came out in two thousand three, um, it was unsolved. They they had no idea who this murderer was. It was an unsolved case. Right. So naturally, the film itself ends with them not having not solved it. Yeah. Because that was that was the real world case that they had not solved it. Um. But that the murders just they, they stopped for for whatever reason that they stopped whether yep. the killer had had enough or you know for some reason um, these murders stopped 
and they had, they had no more kind of evidence to go on. And yeah. at this time as well, in, in 86 in South Korea, they didn't have the same resources that, that kind of Western world had. Um, even, you know, in 1986, <clears throat> even the resources we had in the UK, America, wherever, you know, in, in Europe was not not what they are now. No, but not at all. they were even kind of even and even fewer resources out in Korea. So there's you know, and that becomes a conversation as well throughout the film. Is is you know, we wish we could essentially match DNA, but we do not have the technical kind of equipment to do it. Yeah. So we can send stuff to America. Uh, but it will take ages to come back. You know, yeah. that kind of happens toward the end of the film as well. Is they, they, they think they've found the guy. They're pretty... They think they've got him. Mm. You know, they think they've got the bastard kind of thing. Yeah. And he, and he fits a lot of the kind of the, the sp- specifics, but they need the really hard evidence, which yeah. without the sort of uh, equipment that they need, the only sort of hard evidence they could ever get would be catching the guy doing it. Do you know what I mean? You know, pretty like, much, as, yeah. he's, as he's doing it. <clears throat> So, so they, you know, send off DNA samples to America, and what they get back is, it's not conclusive, right? Yeah. So it's not to say it's not the guy, but it's like there's yeah. nothing they can do legally, right? With with that, it's to say, meh, it's not conclusive. Conclusive. So yeah. So there's this kind of the the end of the film kind of jumps ahead a few years, and you see one of the detectives. He's not a detective anymore. He's basically retired, and he's selling. Um, He's selling like juices, like yeah. fruit, fruit and veg juices or something. Yeah, yeah, um, juices. And he finds himself basically driving past where he first, um, where one of the first bodies that, that they came across was found. Um, and he asks to kind of get out of the back of this van where he's been kind of driven. Um, and he just sits down kind of by this this thing. And this uh, this girl nearby comes over to him and just kind of says, you know, there was someone else here recently as well you know looking exactly where you're looking down mm, there yeah which obviously is referencing the whole thing of you know serial killers return right yeah, yeah. to where they, they do it so it's this thing of like this person is still out there which at the time when the film made was made you know he mm. was still out there and and it was unsolved and um and then in the final shot of the film i think it's absolutely incredible but you've got the the detective, you know, kind of looks from this girl straight down, you know, kind of turns his head and looks directly kind of down the camera yeah. at, at you as the audience. And that was Bong Joon-ho one, hoping, I think, um, hoping that the killer had, had seen the film and could see, you know, I, I see you kind of thing, you know. Mm. Um, that was that was his whole kind of idea of that with that ending. You right, know? okay. It wasn't just a style thing. It was like, a, you know, we know you're... Oh, somewhere you know you okay. haven't necessarily you know yeah that's quite uh yeah quite a poignant sort of ending that's it's interesting yeah very... it's, it's interesting it adds this other kind of layer to it so you know bong joon ho then kind of you know goes throughout his career um and ends up making i mean he, every film he's done i think is amazing um and you know he hits kind of parasite and suddenly the, the film kind of really explodes um he's fully on kind of everyone's radar as a filmmaker yeah, he wins. He wins his Oscars. You know, I think was it the first first foreign language film to win Best Picture? So it won. It won six six Oscars, which is funny because you know <coughs> seven yeah, for seven. yes. Um, Come on, dance so <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so we so we're looking at thirteen 
right? But yeah. a lot of them are the same, you know, best picture, best director, yeah. best screenplay, that and sort of thing. Right, so, rightly deserved, absolutely rightly yeah, deserved for that. Parasite's incredible. So suddenly Parasite gets all this attention, right? And Bong Joon-ho's career, suddenly his films start to get more attention. And Memories of Murder had, had only had a minor DVD release in uh, the UK, Right, um, and then recent, you know, with the success of Parasite, they they finally released Memories of Murder. They released it in UK cinemas again, which is where I first saw Memories of Murder. Okay. I hadn't seen it before, so I, I went along and saw it and was completely <laughs> bowled over. But I was like, this yeah. is absolutely extraordinary. So when Parasite did so well, and all this new attention was coming onto this unsolved case, um, they essentially they they reopened the case again. This is 2019, right. And they essentially they found the guy. No. Years and years later. No right? way. So he's now he's in his fifties and he was already in prison um, for the rape and murder of his sister-in-law, which he was <sighs> caught caught for. But now he he was he was caught and now they have the resources to actually DNA match and they found he matched five he matched DNAs on five of the bodies. Um, wow way back in 86 to 91 yeah um so they've now caught the guy and and he's now confessed and said yeah i killed 14 people um <sighs> which as far as i can tell here they only found 10 bodies wow um <clears throat> that's and, insane uh, it's weird isn't it yeah yeah he's helped i mean catch a serial killer yeah yeah add that so, to your resume <laughs> that's fascinating yeah, there's this really interesting kind of real-world implication of the film's, yeah, you know, success. I mean, it's just, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. That like, is fascinating. Korea's biggest serial killer. He's essentially the Zodiac killer of, of Korea, you know. Yeah. But I didn't know any of this going into the film. So yeah. So when I, I first didn't. watched the film... I didn't know any of that yeah. either. And like I say, they did this big kind of re-release in UK cinemas, and I went and saw it. And was completely bowled over, but the whole time I, I had no idea that they'd never caught the guy. So you, you know, you're watching it, thinking, oh, you know, I really hope they catch this guy. Yeah. And then at the end, you're thinking, oh, I mean, this is him. This is the guy, right? Mm. And, and there's some amazing moments as well when when they kind of are first seeing what this guy could look like, and it's amazing. But you know, and then you end up with the thing of there's no conclusive evidence to suggest it could be this guy, and you're thinking, oh, baby, it has to be. You know, it has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the you know, and, and the two police officers essentially they have the guy at gunpoint, you know, and, and they they have a choice of do they believe enough that this is the guy to yeah. kill him, or would they be killing an innocent because the evidence doesn't quite amount yeah. enough, you know? Um, and they end up letting the guy letting the guy go, and he runs kind of down this down these train tracks. But yeah, so I was like, this is amazing, and then I ended up reading up about all the kind of you know that it was based on a real case and, and i was like all this the context is absolutely incredible and and at this point as well the guy had been caught and i was like this is amazing so <laughs> um and i ended up then re-watching the film in the cinema again a few days later <laughs> because i was just so like this is amazing it was like one of the best kind of cinema experiences i'd had in a, in a while thought, yeah oh, i've got to go and see this again i remember bong Jin ho was talking about he was kind of asked about um the way that he like combines different genres you know? yeah yeah um and he was saying that that's just how films work in in south korea you know he was saying that like essentially if you go to watch a film in south korea if it doesn't make you laugh at some point 
uh, it's a failure. If it's not horrifying at some point, it's a failure. You know, he's like, <laughs> films have to, in South Korea, they just, they have to make you laugh, they have to make you cry, they have to, you know, he was just saying that, like, right. they have to be a bit of everything. Yeah. You know, he's like, the idea of, like, a movie being one genre doesn't really exist there. It's yeah. Just, it's just a bit of everything. That's so interesting. Yeah. And apparently he writes all of his films in the same cafe. So he just goes and sits in this cafe and just writes. Wow. Writes stuff. You know. He must have a massive loyalty card with them or they must be giving him <laughs> like think, yeah. coffees on the house <laughs> by this point. I mean, there's no way that, you know, if you're working at your local little cafe down the road and Quentin yeah. Tarantino comes in and that's where he writes his Oscar winning stuff, there's no way you would ask him to pay, <laughs> surely. You, right. you would be loving that publicity. You'd be like, yeah, he, shot, he comes here. He doesn't go to your shitty Starbucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So, there's oh my god, there's so many just incredible moments in that film. Yeah, but the guy who plays this uh, detective, who's who's he's he's the main character, but he's um, yeah. he's uh, I can't remember the character's name, but him and uh, Bong Joon Ho have had a working relationship over quite a few films. He was the the yeah. father in Parasite. He was also yeah. in Snowpiercer. Yeah. Um, so they've got a really good working relationship. Song Kang Ho is that guy's name. Okay. Right. Um, he's he's in the host as well. The film Bong yeah, Joon Ho did after, quite a few. immediately after Memories of Murder. Um, yeah, and he's he's great. He's so good. I think is he he <clears> could be one of um, Korea's like leading actors. At I, this yeah, stage. he's got to be. He's, he's got to be. He's he, and he's he's, he's amazing. Utterly amazing. He's so good. He's so good. It it got dark really quick, and I I mm. had absolutely no background knowledge of it being mm. based on a real set of murders. So I thought that this was maybe adapted from a novel or something. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah, I sort of appre- I I do like a good dark film sometimes. It's really sort of good. So um, I appreciated uh, sort of the level of detail that he put in for all of this. You know, they had that that poor poor boy who they kept going back to who um he, yeah he, he's got a mental disability but he also got burnt i think he got did he say he got thrown into a fire by his dad when he was a child or something he got There's pushed some, in or something yeah so he's something really awful he's yeah. also disfigured he's got burns all down the side of his face a lot of people in the community sort of shun him um mm. And there's this quite a horrific scene where they realise that the, the, the part of the problem that they have is that there's no witnesses. It's a woman is mm-hmm. snatched off a street by herself or walking through the fields, um, uh, the crop fields and things like that. And this guy would just mm-hmm. leap out and grab them. So no witnesses, but what is probably a teenager, maybe young adult yeah i don't know how yeah. old he is but this yeah. th- th- this lad is hiding inside of a, a haystack i think or mm-hmm. or s- something That's like that it. and he yeah. he sees this um this the one of the victims everything that happens to her and of course the police are like oh my god this is literally like gold dust we've got to get a statement from mm-hmm. him he was a victim of kind of police brutality mm. earlier on by the guy who, you know he's, who just keeps kind of kicking people you know to an inch of their life kind of thing um yeah, and again, it's it's all just, you know, it's the result of of all of this kind of bad, I say bad behaviour, but it's much worse than that, you know. Yeah, um, but of course he's not the most reliable of sources because he's got all of his various issues going on. 
Yeah. And um, it's fair to say that he meets a very horrific end. It's yeah. When that happened, I, I was I didn't I thought he was going to get out of the way in time. He, yeah. Yeah. It was very. He doesn't. No. <laughs> yeah. Their own detective work has has completely derailed the case. You yeah. Know, at that at that moment. And of course, then he he dies without saying who, yeah. who he saw. Well, yeah, because because they they basically they find that every time someone's murdered, it's a rainy day, mm-hmm. and they find it's uh, it's always of an evening, obviously to a woman alone. Yeah, um, and, and a, they find a particular that, um, song was played as well. There's a song. Yeah, it gets requested on the radio because this is pre Spotify and all this, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah. You know, so, so this the, the murder is essentially requesting a song to be played at a certain time on the radio, and then when they hear the song, they it's part of their ritual almost. You know, they they go out and and kill. Yeah. So so it, once they've figured this out, which it's incidentally as well, it's a very kind of male dominated environment at the police um, police station essentially. In, very male dominated kind of province, and there's basically think she's just the one one female police officer you know but she's the one that, that's figured it out you know yeah um which i think is very i mean good very intentional but but yeah so you know and so, so they kind of figure this out and suddenly they have this this through line you know of like okay we can find um so they go to the radio station and they're like where where are these letters coming from you know when mm. you're being asked because obviously this isn't this is pre texting you know, Pre exactly. Steve Wright in the afternoon, it's, it's right. Yeah. So people have to send letters in. You yeah. Know, so they're like, you know, and this radio station is like, look, we get rid of them. We don't keep them. And they're like, no, no, you've got to, you've <laughs> got to find these letters because the dots line up. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah they're trying to explain to them. They're like, uh, check, check the bin. <laughs> yeah, check the bin. <laughs> they just don't care. There's an amazing. There's a really random bit where one of the local detectives thinks, I reckon, it doesn't. He's like, I reckon the murderer is circumcised. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then, that was that was. And someone's like, well, "How are you gonna? How are you gonna find? You know, someone who's circumcised?" And they're like, "Hard cuts to him sat in like a spa, and he's just looking at." All yeah, these, it's like all a naked like... <laughs> male spa, and he's just <laughs> like, sat like all these people are literally within a There's few inches. Weird moment when like a kid walks past, and he even like looks at the kid, and he's like, "Nope, not them." Yeah, he, <laughs> he kind of rolls <laughs> his eyes afterwards, as if to say, "I actually just did that." He also said yeah. it was so. It was the. um main detective as well who believes in like spells and stuff he also mm. said um i i think that they're bold down there because that's right but, okay it's not i know I, th- I think he, i think he did say maybe they're circumcised maybe but he's it's because they they don't find any hair no hair the, uh, crime the, scene yeah they, they, they find uh small traces of spam yeah um left on the crime scenes as well as they find letters underneath the fingernails don't they mm as yeah. some sort of yeah which that they never find out what that's about presumably it's just a form of calling card but yeah oh they find they find a peach inside oh yeah that one of the that, women that, awful that was quite uncomfortable to watch yeah so sh- this victim is on the mortician's table and mm. he says there's something inside her vagina and one by one he pulls out nine pieces of uh mm. chopped up peach yeah, and then I think he pulls out the pip as well, or the pip somewhere else. Or oh no, I think the pip might have been in her mouth, possibly. I don't yeah, know. It's all like very. Um, he's clearly getting comfortable because, of course, 
yeah dna wasn't a thing particularly in korea yeah. that to- at that time but also it's still being developed in the world you know it's still not mm-hmm. anywhere near where it is today um yeah. but the only sort of real hard evidence they could get without that dna match is a confession and if they never catch yeah. him how, exactly. he's never going to confess so he's getting bolder and bolder with each each kill yeah and I mean, yeah. the first one, if you're comparing in terms of locations, the first one was buried under, so it's kind of just off of a crop field and it was like in yeah. the ditch and it's this concrete tunnel where the water would be taken yeah. to presumably a drain hole or something. She was yeah. wedged halfway under there. How someone noticed yeah. that, it's completely... It's so hidden. It's pretty much off the road and you'd yeah. have to almost be down there looking under to even notice anything. I don't know how... But that was the first place. And yeah. then a few murders later, she's just out on... Uh, one of them was just sort of on the side of a crop field, wasn't she? Like, kind of, you could walk down the path and you could almost see yeah. them. Yeah. And then, of course, getting bolder and bolder with the having these various um, items inside the victim. Yeah, it, it is quite, it's quite a tough film at, at it parts but it's, it's not overly kind of um it's tough in terms of its subject matter but mm. in the way that it's told it's it's not as kind of tough as it could be you know yeah. i think it kind of it's um because I, I think bong joon ho wanted to bring as much attention to the case as possible because he kind of is trying to make it as for sure um as watchable as he can you know yeah but i mean it's not uh, there there are some some kind of creepy scenes i mean there's a scene where a woman's walking back home and uh and suddenly you notice behind her there's a man standing oh, in the field free it's one of those where you feel a sharp stab of fear inside you yeah and that bit scary, where that it? it was literally just across the crop field it was just the almost the whole head just popped up very yeah, slowly and then, just, and then, then slowly, slowly went back down. down and then she yeah. carried on walking and then it was almost yeah, like a, she hasn't seen it yeah it was like a pov shot of her walking along the path with crop fields either side and mm. it was very fast very blurry but this bloke then yeah. just bolted at her from the crop field on all four like, he just like sprints out I, he? I, I'll, I, I watched it whilst I was in the bath <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, I, I got it off Apple. did you spill water no I absolutely like I, was like, I absolutely <laughs> like almost shit myself watching that scene yeah, it's I almost in the, in really the cinema, cre- I really yeah. lost it. Yeah, yeah, it's such a f- scary scene. So, what? So, um, why, why is this in your? Why is this number nine for you? What makes it a, mm. b- one of the best films of all time for you? I think so. There's a real thing for me of like that thing of I love music, mm. right? Now, I think the music is, is incredible, and I, I love it when whole scenes are taken over by music. And Memories of Murder does that several several times. Oh, I just I just love it. I think it's so good. Mm-hmm. Where the the medium of film is the medium that I kind of just really resonate with. The things about that medium is what I usually love about it. it. Is the fact that it's so many different art forms within one that it is conveying a narrative within a confined space of time. Mm. So I think for me, it's like Memories of Murder has kind of ticks all those boxes of. You know, I think visually it's good, go- especially when the rain starts coming down. It's g- gorgeous it's to beautiful. look at parts, you know. The music is amazing. And it, and there are whole sequences as well where there's no dialogue, but it's still conveying mm. emotions. and Yeah. Uh, but then it has that extra layer 
I mean, you know, well, it's also got amazing performances and is telling a really interesting story from the get-go, right? So yeah. you've got all this stuff that's just base level, but then you've got that extra layer of the real life side that just makes it so much more fascinating yeah. to watch. And <clears throat> that whole final shot when he looks directly down camera and you, you can see, you know, when you know that it's a real life case that wasn't solved at this point, it's like, you know, yeah. he's looking at the murderer at that moment. And, and the point is almost... The murderer could be me. You do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like the murderer could be anyone, you know. It really this could. is the whole the whole thing. And I think it's just such uh, an amazing, amazing, amazing film. I, I loved it so much. You know, the only reason it's at number nine rather than lower down is is mostly because some of the other films I just have had longer to sit with or older films mm. or whatever. But but yeah, I, I, I love Memories of Murder. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess that's something which which we haven't sort of said is the is there something I mean you you've just answered it but what what is it about say memories of murder which trump strictly ballroom you know and then mm. what would your next film why does that trump memories of murder mm. oh, so, that's really interesting. Maybe, I don't think I could answer no. those questions. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of every episode, as we have previously stated, we'll be going through our next favorite film mm. in the list and next episode will be our number eighth best film of all time so yeah. do you want to uh do you want to go first since you went first today okay sure so my number eighth film of all time i'm so excited whiplash Whee! Whee! Okay, yeah, 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 yeah 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 okay I've, I've actually i've been in the process of wanting to rewatch that recently so here's a good reason very well <laughs> my girlfriend's never seen it so really I've been like we've, <gasps> we've got to watch it we've no got to watch it. that's right? appalling you've got to tell her off for me that yeah. that that's not on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it I calls do. herself a cinema fan no, honestly right one of her favorite films is black swan she, she'll love whiplash i haven't seen black swan so tell her that <laughs> there you go there you go they're, they're similar thematically but you know yeah yeah, very stylistically, they're completely different. Mm. Uh, um, so, what's your? Yeah, that's, that's a great number eight. Thank you. <clears throat> um, my number eight is Fargo. Uh, I had a feeling this might pop up at some point because okay. I know I, knew, I know yeah. you're a big fan of Fargo. So that's uh, I also have not seen Fargo. So I've seen part of okay. the series, but I haven't seen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen the films. So this is a good excuse to also watch it because that's been in my watch oh, list yeah. for years so yeah. fortunately whiplash is like hour and a half so it's much shorter <laughs> than uh, dances with wolves <laughs> true yeah how, how long is fargo a couple of hours yeah fargo's hour and a half as well okay so you'll be i don't mind i don't mind nice and short maybe i'll rewatch fargo as well <laughs> I, I could watch fargo and whiplash in a night and it would still be shorter than dances with wolves <laughs> wow don't just shit on my top ninth favorite film <laughs> Yeah, God. but it doesn't have the sort of cinema gravitas that Stances with Wolves yeah, has. <laughs> it's true, it's true. They don't make them like they used to. Awesome. Have fun. Yes, you too. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the Films to Save the World podcast series one. We hope you can join us on the next one. 